Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy's Investor Spotlight series, where we dig into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies that are powering the world's best investors and investment firms. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Eric Markowitz, who is the head of research at Worm Capital. Worm is one of my favorite hedge funds. I've been reading their quarterly reports for years. They run a concentrated long-only strategy and invest in technology, innovation, and disruption. They hold a concentrated portfolio of between 5 and 10 positions that today includes Shopify, Spotify, Tesla, Airbnb, Amazon, and NextEra Energy. Since inception, Worm has compounded their investors' capital at over 31% per year, while the S&P 500 has delivered just over 15% over the same period. I want to sit down with Eric to dive into Worm's unique approach to investing, which they call the Worm Algorithm and Worm Theory, to understand how they've generated such incredible returns over the last decade. In this episode, we cover why Worm is drawn to complexity and how they understand complex businesses and turn that into a powerful advantage. We explore Worm's approach to conviction and concentration and how they maintain conviction over years without wavering amidst staggering volatility in some of their holdings. We dive into Worm theory to understand how the game of business is won one transaction at a time and why they use customer value proposition as their North Star when investing. And we dive into Tesla, which they've held since early 2017, to understand their original hypothesis, how they've maintained conviction over the years, and why they're so focused on understanding Tesla's neural net, which powers their full self-driving technology now. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 96. It's episode 96. To learn more about Worm Capital, visit wormcapital.com. You can also follow Eric Markowitz on Twitter at Eric Markowitz. That's M-A-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. With that, let's listen and learn about Worm's approach to investing in technology, innovation, and disruption. Eric Markowitz, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy. I am beyond thrilled to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it. So we're going to spend all of today talking about Worm Capital. And uh, typically I wouldn't do this. I try to spare people kind of any preamble, but I'm going to share a little bit in this episode because it's somewhat unique. So I've been following Worm for the better part of two years and reading your guys' quarterly letters. And the thing I was just constantly impressed by is, you know, I spend the majority of my time in private markets doing venture capital. So funding earlier stage companies at Worm are clearly focused on the public markets, but there's so much around your philosophy, the way you view the world, the way you view innovation that just really speaks to me that I felt just always drawn to what you were writing. And so long story short, I was able to meet you, meet some of the team at Worm and be able to have you on. Eric, you're the director of research at Worm. Just to start because we've got to cover a lot of ground to try to get people up to speed on Worm. I want to talk a little bit about and kind of introduce people to Worm. And I thought an interesting way to do that is on the website, you guys have wormcapital.com. You have just a really simple kind of beginning of the homepage. It just says technology plus innovation plus disruption. Can you talk about that and just maybe flesh out a quick sketch for people of who Worm is, what you guys focus on, um, kind of basic details? Sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, we are... We're an investment firm, I think, with a fairly unique perspective on the market, which is we're living through a a pretty unique time, the 2020s being a period of industrial dislocation and change and disruption. I think like the true definition of disruption, that's a word that gets kind of tossed around quite a bit these days. But we're looking for sectors of the market that from like a 30,000 foot perspective 
are changing pretty quickly and going from, let's say, technology A to technology B. And we're looking for ultimately sort of the, the winners of these cycles. And as opposed to maybe, let's say, 30, 40 years ago, where there were maybe six, seven, eight, nine companies that could exist on their own. We think that there's going to be an increasing amount of consolidation at the top. So a winner take all or winner take take most dynamic. And you're starting to see this play out. I think like a simple example that you see in the market is even something like Google, which is, you know, 20, 25 years ago, there were a bunch of search engines that that popped up, but ultimately the the one with the best value proposition won. And there were increasing returns of scale there. So you see these power laws dynamics uh, unfold over time, but the big get bigger. And as an investor, that creates a really unique and I think challenging framework to actually allocate capital, which is you can't necessarily trust the idea of diversification as much. And the idea of diversification itself does not necessarily defray risk. So we tend to be hyper-concentrated on companies that we think are not only going to survive into the future, but but really thrive and, and take market share and potentially become sort of the, the winner take most of their chosen industry. So technology, innovation, disruption, I mean, these are, you know, very broad sort of categories of just terms, but we're looking for, I suppose you can say companies that are building the infrastructure today that will meet the value proposition for customers, uh, both today and tomorrow. And I think that there are a lot of companies out there that you know, even in the last couple of years, you've seen, especially across like the SPAC market, companies that have come to market with with a lot of sort of promises of a great future. And I think some of them may very well be successful. But another one of our core tenants as a firm is is really just to invest in companies that quote unquote have wheels on the ground um, that that have like that have customers today that have revenue that that have sort of an installed base. You know, and fundamentally, I mean, I probably should have started with this, but. I think we're just we're just optimists. I think that we believe that technology and sort of the, the the culture that we live in will will actually improve over time. That there will be more efficiencies across the market. That our lives will improve. That there can be some really great opportunities for for wealth creation. At the same time, there's a lot of risks in this market and fears because some of the companies that were maybe very successful in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s they may no longer survive in this future. So that's the high level. And from there, I think, you know, we just kind of like to sort of stay a little bit off the radar. We're, you know, we're, we're named Worm Capital for a reason. We're not, you know, looking for glory. We're just looking to stay humble and just learn from this market and, you know, do the best for our partners who ultimately our clients are the best thing we have as a firm. You know, their sort of patience and their conviction in us is, enables us to really express our investment themes in the portfolio and, and give us the time that we need to see some of these themes to play out. And just to add a couple other details, so you guys are a, a hedge fund, you have a long only and then a long and short strategy. Are you guys just focused on the US? So you guys kind of look globally? Yeah, we're pretty agnostic. That's right. We have a long only strategy and um, that was launched in 2012. Our long short strategy was uh, launched actually five years ago this month. Uh, so we're generally agnostic when it comes to geography vertical market cap range. I mean, I think we're, we're generally attracted to larger cap companies simply as just a consequence of our investment philosophy. But we take a look at everything. I mean, we're looking at, you know, companies that are still private pre-IPO. Just from a pure research perspective, we kind of, you know, want to know what's going on in, in all parts of the, uh, the spectrum of, of the market. 
Yeah. One of the things you talked about that I want to turn really quickly is, you know, so this will come up again and again in our conversation is the this focus around customer value proposition. But I think you, you made one great point, which is really important, which is it's not the promise of a future value proposition. It's the ability to deliver that today and in the future. <laughs> and so I think that wills on the ground is really important because obviously, as you mentioned, a lot of the, you know, SPACs are kind of just younger companies that are, to be super frank, much earlier in their kind of gestation process, you know, have really big ambitions and are able to tell this beautiful story of what they want to build in the future. But if you try to look at where they actually are today on delivering, they're incredibly early. <laughs> Why is the wheels on the ground so important? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything that we do is through the lens of, of risk. And, you know, we get this question a lot around how, how do you define risk? Because our strategy, because we're so concentrated, it often appears to people as if, well, this is quote unquote risky because you, you have concentrated portfolio and, and there, that increases the amount of month to month volatility, even quarter to quarter over year over year. But we view ourselves much like, you know, in the sort of Warren Buffett philosophy of we're business owners. And the reason why customer value proposition is especially important in this market, sort of in, I think in this like paradigm is, you know, the internet has been this incredible force for transparency. And ultimately customers know who has the best product and service. And that's true across business to business and certainly consumer businesses. And so where you find yourself getting into risky situations is if you own companies that are not meeting customer value proposition. And from there, growth sort of diminishes, growth rates slow. So we're much more sort of focused on companies that have the ability to just uh, create very happy and loyal customers. So that during times of inevitable market chaos, the inevitable next recession, the inevitable force majeure that you know we've now encountered, it seems like we encounter these tail risk events every six months now. And so... I think that in an environment that is so prone to big swings in market volatility and chaos, owning businesses that have exceptional customer value proposition built into their sort of you know management DNA is itself risk management. And that gives us the ability to A, allocate capital with a lot of confidence, with a high degree of conviction, and then B... It, we don't trade very much. Um, we let companies that we own grow. And it also gives us really a significant margin of safety when we own companies with a great value proposition. And this also has sort of secondary and tertiary effects of when companies have incredible value propositions, you know, and that and tactically that just means everything from like, you know, high NPS scores, low churn rates. I mean, you can quantify it in lots of ways, but ultimately there's sort of a fulfilling prophecy of attracting new talent, retaining management, to work on these problems and having loyal customers because we see it you know in our business is just so integral to kind of long-term success and if you're trying to build a firm and a track record and investment strategy that can survive 10 15 30 50 years these are sort of the the precepts or the ideas that that we find most important for a long-term mindset inevitably there's going to be bumps along the way but having just that conviction in the value proposition and knowing that our companies are are focused in on that relentlessly and not, you know, financial engineering to meet their quarterly goals. That's a big benefit for us as long-term holders. Yeah. The way you talk about that customer value proposition, 
you know, reminds me of two concepts. One is obviously this idea of a flywheel that once you have these things in motion, you start to be the beneficiary of rather than feeling like you're pushing a boulder uphill, you now are starting to suck talent from your competition. You're starting to have much easier access to capital. You know, you're just, I think, being perceived in a much better way across the board. But another concept that always makes me think about and kind of one insight I've had that is always rolling around my head is that the best businesses are great examples of being in a superposition where, you know, a lot of people will try to look at a business and think about the one vector that the business is great. But I think take a business like Apple is a masterful example. They not only are world-class at everything from manufacturing chips to all of the electronic circuitry to the software to the hardware. They're also fantastic at marketing. They, uh, you know, run some of the best retail stores in the world. And so I think when you look at any, you know, successful business, yes, they might start off, you know, being kind of skewed and incredibly talented in one area, but the best businesses that are durable end up finding this superposition, which I've just always thought that was kind of a a fascinating insight. (laughs) I totally agree. And I think that one thing that I often think about is, that the business of investing and allocating capital is 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 often different than actually allocating capital on behalf of yourself and your own portfolio. And so I think one thing that I take a lot of pride in is that, you know, myself and my other partners are we're, we're totally committed alongside our investors. We totally eat our own dog food. It's it's very much how we invest personally and we're invested alongside of our investors. And the reason I bring that up is I think that there is an urge especially on the public equity side when you're an investment manager, to put ideas into your portfolio that would be on paper or in a pitch very attractive to attract new investors. And these are often your second or third best ideas. And so businesses like Apple, I think that once you've reached a certain level of scale, it's great to own Apple. Maybe it's your largest position. But if you're trying to attract new capital, I think that there is a bit of a scramble to come up with the next great idea, right? And we get asked this all the time, like we have a, a successful position, they want to know, well, what's the next thing, right? And, and I think that there is some recency bias to this business where you have to resist that urge just to put new ideas in for the sake of putting new ideas in and attracting new investors. And doing that, I mean, I've learned everything I know about this business through our founder, Arnie Allison. I you know, just want to make sure I give him due credit because everything I'm saying kind of is inspired by him and my own interpretation of it. And I think one thing that he's really taught me just both intellectually, but also tactically is you really have to avoid that sort of, you know, uh, I guess people call it FOMO, but just this idea of introducing new businesses into your portfolio because they sound, you know, attractive and you know that maybe it sounds great for your clients. But ultimately what we're just trying to do is protect our, our partner's capital, protect our own capital, and there aren't that many great businesses in the world. You know, I think um, we referenced it in a recent letter, but I mean, the the attribution of you just look at like the S&P 500, I mean, only a handful of companies really drive returns. I mean, a great number of companies over the last 30, 40 years, you know, generate negative returns. And so there's there's a handful of winners. And it really, I think, is challenging as a investment manager to just, you know, be this selective. But I I, I think it's like imperative for our the benefit of our clients to not get distracted by things that come along that sound good on paper, especially when periods like 2020, 2021, where you know, everything's going up, there's a lot of excitement in the market, there's euphoria, 
those are moments, you know, because eventually, you know, the tide comes back and then you see who's swimming naked and you just don't want to be, you know, caught in that, in that position. You just want to own sort of the best in class. And, you know, the only thing I'll add there is I have a friend, Christopher Sai, who um, put this idea to me recently. And he said, you know, just, you just only want to own the best, you know, that's the thing, just own the best. It's not that complicated. And I think about that a lot when I, when I look at our portfolio and I think about, you know, investing in general is, um, again, there just aren't that many best ideas, especially in public equities. And you just have to internalize that because my day is spent, I'm looking at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of companies every year. And on paper, it's like, you know, we've owned the same company. So it takes a certain mindset, which I, I give Arnie a lot of credit for avoiding a lot of the landmines in this market. I think it's incredibly difficult to stay disciplined. And I think you guys are a masterful example of that, especially when you're, I think, focused on innovation. There is this tendency or this sense that, oh man, there's so many companies that could be potentially in it. You could put in a basket of interesting, innovative companies. And yet to be able to stay true to a very small number of, say, 10 to 15 concentrated bets is really, really, really difficult. <laughs> and I want to talk about that in a second. So I want to start getting into when we were talking before, one of the ideas that you brought up is worm as an algorithm, which I love because I think it's a wonderful way to explore, especially for an investor and investment manager, the way that they see the world. And so I wanted to kind of walk through some of what we've discussed as worm as an algorithm and, and some of the things I think might fit in there. But I wanted you to start with this 30,000 foot worldview of being drawn to complexity and just believing that we're in a period of massive disruption, innovation, and, and what that means in terms of positioning. So can you just try your best, I guess, to lay out the 30,000 worldview that drives the way you guys see the world and the way you approach investing? Yeah. Again, I, I credit Arnie with this idea, but I think that where where we can get an advantage is actively seeking out parts of the market that are considered complex. And we very much consider ourselves value investors and all of us have, you know, read like all the Buffett letters. And I think that there's this idea, I forget if it's Buffett or Munger, but there's the too hard pile or um, you know, stay within your circle of competence. And while we agree with like, you know, 99% of what Buffett and Munger preach, we disagree with that. I think I think that what we personally are drawn to are this idea that there is no such thing really as complexity, that you know, if you just if you just break everything down to its fundamental elements and rearrange it like a big puzzle, you can figure it out. I mean, there is no such thing as expertise. Like you just spend time pulling something apart until you've done it so many times that you understand it. And so that's how we approach sort of all the sectors that we study, which is this idea that it's all a big puzzle and that we have no opinions on it. We have no sort of perspective. Let's say, you know, we can pick an industry like um, energy disruption. Um, so, you know, we could start with a very high level idea that, you know, we think that there's probably a better way to create energy than extracting fossil fuels from the ground. But we don't really have an opinion about exactly how it's going to unfold. All we know is that if we spend enough time researching on the ground level, what is the best value proposition for customers, we'll have a better sense of actually you know, what companies are best likely to succeed in the future. And so I think that there's a, a desire in this business to put things into a spreadsheet, you know, and, and quantitatively come up with an answer of, well, this is, you know, this is the DCF and this is the this is the number that it's showing me. So therefore it's a it's a good stock pick. I think we approach things much more qualitatively 
than quantitatively. We pride ourselves on just pure fundamental research. All of my time is spent just, you know, reading basically and talking to people and just trying to figure out the the story of what business is, what they're doing, how it works, the inputs and the outputs. And I think what really ultimately happens is if you spend enough time researching something and you become really sort of this quote unquote expert in something, you're able to synthesize information much more clearly and it enables you to understand what you're reading in the media or in the news, if it's true or not true. And I think increasingly that's becoming the source of advantage for investors. This idea of being able to synthesize information, separate signal from noise, and there's no shortcut to it. I mean, it's just like, you just got to spend the time and the hours. If you've chosen to say, hey, I believe, I think it all starts with this sort of key insight though, which is, hey, I think that this industry is going to change, you know, just based on some insights about the changing, you know, cost nature of renewables and if we're talking about energy, but also not getting overwhelmed and saying, well, that's outside my circle of competence. So I'm going to stick to something I know. Um, because ultimately that's that's a losing battle in my opinion. I think I think that this is an incredibly competitive game. I mean, there's some of the brightest people in the world vying for the best returns and Ultimately, you have, kind of have to pick your spots, and we just pride ourselves on you know if we're going to pick a spot, we're just going to know it better than anyone else, and that's the only way that we have found success. And there's plenty of you know another thing that Arnie would say is like there's plenty of routes up the mountaintop, you know, and and I think that there's our way is just one way of doing it. There's plenty of other um, investment managers whose work I I respect the hell out of. That's their chosen path. I mean, we have our own, we focus on it. And again, we just sort of, you know, we keep our heads down and just try to pull the puzzle apart and put it back together and take like an engineering approach to this business. And it's not glamorous, you know, this isn't billions. This is like very much like, uh, you know, it's like if you were to come into my office, just like books and, you know, whiteboards and um, Arnie's the same way. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of quiet. There's no glory in this business. It's just purely like it's just a competition and we're just trying to, you know, put the best strategy forward each day. Yeah, I love a lot of the sentiments that you just shared. You know, the idea that there isn't a too hard pile, the idea that there is no secret, that it's basically just putting in an enormous amount of work to be able to kind of sort it out and take it apart. It also seems that that is, I've found, because I'm also in that camp, that there are very few people that are in that camp. (laughs) I've always thought to myself of, why is that? And, and, you know, part, I think the two things I kind of have toggled between that still feel true to me is one, I think there are a lot of people that just have a very, I don't know, they just believe that if you take a fixed, narrow approach, for sure, that's going to work out better than being kind of broad and open and exploratory and curious where do you fall in that spectrum? And, and how do you think about why it is a true advantage to not be overly narrowly focused? I think that there's so much benefit of uh, just being openly curious about the world and wanting to just be open and optimistic and, and form no opinions. I think that the worst thing that an investor can do is just form an opinion and and just say, you know, the pencils, like put pencils down, it's done. You know, I, maybe we'll talk about this later. You know, I started my career as a, as a journalist and I think that there's some maybe relationship with investing a little bit like art or writing in that the work is never really done. I mean, if you talk to any novelist or any artist, you could talk about their best work that, you know, sold for lots of money. They're always going to tell you the same thing, which is, oh, I wish I did it a little bit differently. I wish I had more time to work on it. Um, and, and I think that's very true of an investing generally, which is it's just never done. I mean, there's always more 
work to be done because there's just always more to read. There's there's more books to consume. One thing that I like to do in downtime is just like, you know, read up on history. I think that, you know, that there's definitely some truth to the idea that history may not repeat, but it does rhyme. And so I think even just spending time kind of going through old market cycles is a huge benefit as an investor, just understanding sort of the cadence of these things. And then there's, you know, I, I also tend to think that investing is a game of strategy or a sport that is so multidisciplinary. Like it doesn't require just one or two skill sets to be good at. You have to be good at a lot of things, which is why it's so hard. And I think why it's so fun is you know, a huge element is just the behavioral element of just understanding human psychology, how crowds behave, how culture evolves, understanding even probabilities. Like I, you know, I love playing poker and I wouldn't say I'm a good player. I would say I'm a player that's logged a lot of hours at the table. And so it's a game where ultimately it's similar to investing in that you're making decisions in a game where there's limited data available to you. So you have to make decisions without having all the information. But you can get information through lots of different ways. I mean, you can think like what the opponents might be thinking, what they're saying. You could look at sort of the historical element of it and say, well, this is how these players played these hands in the past, how I've played it. So I I just think of investing as like this big game. And there are ways to get really good at games. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, there's some of the best chess players in the world. It's not random. It's because they've studied the strategy and they, you know, have a, a, a very sort of, I guess, diverse perspective on what it takes to win. And so I think, you know, just staying super open-minded and curious is really like integral to even trying to be successful. And I wouldn't say that I'm successful at it at all. I think it's just, you know, I've recognized that the real talent comes from people who are just um, endlessly curious and voracious and just want to improve as opposed to kind of, you know, sitting back and saying, well, we've done it, come to us, we've got all the answers. I think that's the real danger sign to me. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on that is one way I've tried to think about it and visualize it for myself is, you know, almost if you take a piece of paper and draw draw a grid of a bunch of dots, you know, I think if you're broadly curious, one thing that I've noticed is everything's related. Like I will learn, I will dive into a new area that, you know, might be something like um, carbon capture and be like, this has no relevance to anything else that I know. And that I'll find a way that it connects and I'll, you know, find a way to use that information later on. And so I think one way that I've thought about it is just, you're never wasting time. You're just basically forming bizarre connections <laughs> across the entire grid, as opposed to just being like, I'm just going to focus on this corner and, you know, draw, kind of connect all these dots together. I think it ends up looking much more like a tapestry. One of the things I wanted to talk about is time horizons and thinking in decades. And you had an amazing piece recently you shared on Twitter that was from Nightcrawler, uh, the newsletter that you put out for Worm, which is fantastic. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll talk about it again at the end, but I highly encourage everyone lis- uh, listening to subscribe. But, you know, you had this wonderful little short piece around thinking in decades and time horizons and just how unusual that is and then how much of investing is just time arbitrage. And if you have a different time horizon than other players in the game, you know, you're inherently in many ways playing a different game. Talk about that and how you think about time horizons and and the advantage of thinking in decades and just thinking longer term. 
Yeah, again, I mean, it's everyone plays their own game. And I think that there still is a lot of advantage that remains in this market for investors who are willing to take a longer term perspective. And I think it, you know, if you if you end up kind of in these circles, that, that can almost sound like a bit of a trite idea. But you certainly see it in reality, which is like, you know, we have a a five-year track record on our long short, a 10-year. And I still think that's like baby years. You know, I, I think that's like, okay, we're just getting started. Like, come on. And I have some structural advantages, right? Like my age, I'm in my 30s. So what is my best advantage as an investor? That's probably the fact that I hopefully have at least, you know, 40 years left to really just compound capital. I think that there are some like mental frameworks that are helpful in thinking about decades, especially when things are kind of nutty and, you know, like stocks are going like this. I think that sometimes just writing down, you know, sort of like where you think super back of the envelope math, where you think businesses could be just some basic assumptions. I think that there's an urge to maybe overcomplicate valuation techniques through, you know, complicated DCFs and any sort of like really super quantitative framework overlay on a business. In a lot of ways, I mean, sometimes it just takes on a whiteboard, just just kind of jot out where you think the, the business could be two, five, 10 years from now. There's a bit of a sweet spot, I think, of, you know, I don't know what the market's going to do over the next 12 months. And frankly, I have no idea what it's going to do 10 years from now. But I think like the two to five year range is actually, you can grok it. I mean, you can you can kind of figure it out, spend enough time. And really, you're just kind of putting forward some probabilities. But two to five years, I think is, you can come up with some a mental model that, that can be, you know, pretty accurate, at least from you know, probability perspective. And then in terms of like actually really big picture, okay, thinking in decades, I recently had a daughter and we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, she's seven months old. Uh, You know, obviously I love her to death already. And, you know, I just think like when she's, you know, like 18 or 20 and we're starting to save for college, just thinking about like, what are the decisions that that are really going to pay off for that? And I think that when you start thinking really like, something in your own life where you start actually planning, not just some theoretical framework, it's like a tactical thing. Like what is going to be the decision that has the highest payoff for her 20 years down the road? I think it, it, it like mentally adjusts your brain. It's a, it's a forcing function for you to get out of your own head and start thinking about someone else. Or, you know, if you were to think about like a charitable foundation that, you know, you'd be starting, how can I build something today that really is going to have those sort of safe, you know, like it's a safe long-term bet. How do you do that? You know, it's it's really challenging on the practical day-to-day to kind of overcome the current environment that we live in, which is I think we fetishize news. You know, I think we fetishize what's happening today. And if you read that piece that that you referenced before, I think one thing that the author does is like, you know, throughout human history, one thing is for sure, humans are really the only animal that can really actually conceptually think 10, 15, 20 years out. And we rarely take advantage of that. Yeah, we're pretty terrible uh, at it overall. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty terrible. And it's like maybe not totally our fault because, you know, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we were just trying to survive the day. And, you know, like warring tribes would be, you know, encircling us. And so we just had to kind of survive the winter. But if we just allow ourselves to go outside of, the day-to-day news and just clock out of Twitter, clock out of you know CNN for a few days and just spend some time reading history, I think that you put yourself in a mental mindset to make better decisions. And so I'm certainly not good at it. I'm super plugged into the 24-7 cycle, but I actively try to disengage as much as possible to force myself to kind of make you know bigger picture ideas and, and just thinking about, hey, 
this is a likely scenario for the next 5, 10, 15 years. You don't have certainty on any of these things. I mean, there is no such thing as certainty in any of it. But at least I think the one thing that you can kind of tactically do is just read more history books, you know, turn off the news, not not get so suckered into whatever latest drama. I mean, there's there's for sure horrible things happening, but there's also great things happening. Those just don't get nearly as much attention. And so uh, that's the perspective that we strive to, which is, you know, thinking in decades, really knowing that, yeah, the two to five years, that's where we can actually kind of allocate a portfolio and build a portfolio. But really kind of the, the overlay is, can this thing survive over the next, you know, few decades? And I think it just, um, it's a calming effect to, to think about it like that, you know, so you're not trying to time anything. We have no advantage on, you know, any sort of macroeconomic moves. We just know that, you know, if we, if we position ourselves well, and this is something that, again, I'm going to reference Arnie a few times because I feel like uh, he's definitely my mentor. And he just says this all the time, which is just get in position. We're just getting in position. And I think about that, you know, constantly, like, are we in position today? You know, are we in position for next week? Are we in position for next year, next decade, and so on? Yeah, I love that. Get in position. Just to add a couple other things, you know, what was kind of bubbling up for me uh, as you were, you know, sharing all of that is just also this idea that the best businesses that I've ever studied also think, I don't know if you could quite say in decades, but they think over very long time horizons. So as a great example, I remember reading this piece a couple of years ago around Costco and it was around earlier in the company's history, what it was like when they were opening up their 10th warehouse and their 11th warehouse. And, you know, I think most people would look at Costco today and think, oh, it's got to be the easiest thing. They basically go, they, you know, are investing to build this out. It probably takes what, 12, 18 months to get one of these built and opened up and get the teams hired. And then they probably open their doors and, you know, they're off to the races. And one of the quotes, what I loved because it's like, this is the true nature of businesses. Uh, it was from the CEO at Costco is basically saying every warehouse they open is a valley of tears because the, as soon as you open it, it's nothing but pain and misery and nothing's working and you have to debug everything. And it takes quite a while to be able to do it. And so I think that's even just, you think about Costco opening up a warehouse that is effectively a three to five year investment that they're making of, you know, deploying this capital, dealing with the sunk costs of that, dealing with earning basically nothing, and then trying to get it up to a profitable store. And you can kind of take that example and, and replicate it. But anyways, it's just always felt very true to me that the best business operators also think over very long time horizons. One of the things I want to talk about as well, too, is, you know, conviction and concentration. And I want to start by just asking, you know, do you guys try to, I think the number you guys try to stay around is 10 positions. Am I right there? And how do you think about that? Generally, but, you know, even less is, is certainly possible. So it can be, I guess, as concentrated as you guys want it to be, <laughs> even five positions. Yeah. There's no constraints. So just historically, I remember when I first started with, with Arnie several years ago, like six, seven years ago, I believe, I'd have to check my notes, but I, th I think the long only strategy had three positions. Super, super, super concentrated. <laughs> super concentrated, but also we just firmly believe like there, there aren't that many great businesses. And so when you have a lot of conviction in something and also when certain businesses are at turning points and potentially offer multiple lines of revenue. So, I mean, a, a good example that one of those businesses was Amazon. We owned it, you know, and it was a big percentage of the portfolio and in large part because we just considered it like, you know, two, two businesses in one. It was the e-commerce business and, and it was also the cloud business. Two totally separate businesses running side by side under the same organization. And so even if the the concentration, I think it, you know, was maybe 40% of our long only fund, maybe 50%, but we just feed it like, well, it's, you know, half and half. And so it's really like we own two businesses there. So 
these are all you know sort of variable. But the other thing, I guess, on just on concentration is we tend to believe that there are certain businesses that are hitting you know potentially exponential or near exponential growth curves. This just goes back to getting into position. Um, we we just feel for the benefit of ourselves, the benefit of our partners, and also just there aren't that many businesses that can grow fifty percent a year, which is kind of what we're looking at. For us, we we just need to own these um, because the upside is so high, and the level of conviction that we've developed over a period of years just lets us totally, you know, relax. And we're not trying to get fancy with timing anything. You know, something that we often get sort of asked about is like, uh, well, when do you sell? Do you take profits along the way? You know, it's a case by case basis, obviously. But if we think the stock's at 10 and we think the stock could be at a thousand in a few years from now and it goes up to 50, we're probably not going to, you know, take too many profits because that just would not be the, you know, the best way to capture upside for our partners. You know, I lean on our team and, you know, just something that just I think that this is it's a humbling business and I think one of the the most humbling aspects is selling something too soon. You talk to any investor, you know, who does this professionally for many years, ask them what their biggest mistake is. It's pretty rarely like, "Oh, I bought that thing." And it's mostly like, "Oh, I owned Apple in 1998 and I sold it, you know, for 2x." <laughs> Or I should have bought ten times the amount. I bought one share, and I should have bought 10 exactly <laughs> right. Like I should have bought more. I knew, you yeah. Know. And so, you know, that's something that it's tough to quantify exactly. And so there's there's you can come up with lots of portfolio constraints and rules, and, and there's ways to do it. And I think within certain parameters, but we tend to let our our winners run. You know, if the business is operating really well and and it's hitting sort of the internal benchmarks that that we think it should be hitting. You know, just as share prices go down for no reason, like sometimes they go up too high for no reason. Over the time, over you know, significant amount of time, several years, the market is very efficient at normalizing these rates and just delivering sort of the right value. But in the short term, as you know, I mean, like the, the prices are sort of meaningless. And this is your, you know, you suggested time arbitrage. That's the whole idea is that, you know, the market itself contains very little information about the businesses. It's the businesses that have information about the businesses. <laughs> like if it's the Kentucky Derby, like the the focus should be on the horses, not on what's happening at the ticket booth. It's like, we want to know which horses are going to win. One of the questions I want to ask around concentration is much more tactical, which is, you know, one of the things I know just from talking with you is you're both doing two things at once all the time. And one of those is you're looking at a massive number of ideas and you're digging in, obviously, into current positions, but also things that you don't own today that you may or may not own in the future. So you're doing this kind of very broad research. At the same time, you're maintaining a very concentrated portfolio. And I guess as I think about that from the outside looking in, I think, wow, that's a lot of tension because I'm sure there are moments all the time where you get really excited about something that's not in the portfolio. And I don't know, then you have to get into the, the, the kind of debate and timing and discussion of when does it enter the portfolio? And so I just want to ask at a really high level, how do you think about that? How do you approach that? This kind of tension between you're always looking for things, but then you always want to be incredibly disciplined about when you add that, if you ever add it. <laughs> It's yeah, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not like a huge sports guy, but I know that a lot of people who listen to this might be, and they might be big NFL fans. And like, you know, Bill Belichick, like, I'm sure that he sees lots of talent at every level, right? Like, I'm sure he's at maybe I don't know if grandkids, maybe he's at his grandkids, and he sees like, wow, that that Pee Wee player, he's great. You know, keep an eye on that kid. 
he's not going to swap out Brady for that, right? So I think that's a little bit not to equate myself to Belichick or any you know pro athlete whatsoever, but just sort of theoretically or philosophically, I think that's kind of how we approach it, which is a bit of like a major leagues and a minor leagues, and maybe like a college and then a high school and then elementary school. We're kind of like keeping tabs on all of these businesses at various stages, and some of them like. They may be great businesses, like like that high school you know basketball player. He might be the best high school basketball player in all the state. Um, could he play in the Knicks? Probably not. And so that's that's I suppose the the framework for you know just sort of the the watch lists and the you know literal just lists of businesses that we follow internally, which is like yeah, there's hundreds of them. Some of them are really early stage. You know they don't have any revenue, but they've got a great team and the technology is really interesting. Some of them might be more mature, but they're more like maybe your major league player who's close to retirement, had a great you know few years. Um, this is like most of the stuff in the Dow, maybe the S&P. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of like the Dow, right? Yeah. Like there's, you know, I mean, there's some great legacy businesses there and, but do you want to own them for the next 30 years? I'd say that it's a bit of a taste question and it's also just sort of probabilities and time duration, but tactically for sure. Tension is probably the right word. I get excited about businesses all the time. If I could have a portfolio with thousands of businesses, like, you know, theoretically, that would be super fun, but it's not the right way to invest, in my opinion, in, in our opinion. I mean, because you're just, you are introducing way more risk into the portfolio by diversifying into lots of unknowns. And so I think that that there's opportunities like just to watch businesses grow just to take a step back i think that like this period of time will maybe 10 15 20 years from now will look almost like just like oh we were at like the really the first couple innings of whatever is going to happen next i mean if you just think about the history of technology like we've only had the internet itself for like really 25 years right like within our lifetimes you and i grew up with like going to the library, you know, oh, yeah. and like <laughs> AOL CD, all of it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, like, what does the next twenty-five years bring? And so, I, you know, I don't think that uh, I'm saying that businesses today are, are, are by any means like quaint, but I certainly think that if you're looking for sort of like investing opportunity set, not that it's going to be easy, but just that this time period is going to present itself with some incredible opportunities, and that you know, that's like crypto space healthcare, just any sort of financial technology, certainly energy, e-commerce, media. There's so many areas that I think are kind of like up for grabs at this point. And what's super nuts to me is just like the the ability to to grow exponentially fast in a totally connected world where overnight, I mean, you've seen this in, in music, particularly of just like overnight sensations and just virality. You can now really have this in sort of like a business landscape as well, which is suddenly con- you know consumer preferences shift and consumers want something. You know, I was looking at sort of like recently the the rise of TikTok and how quickly that platform has just exploded in popularity. And so that will I think just that idea that things happen very quickly um, and can grow very very fast at scale. I think we're still just kind of playing around with like what that could become over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And for me, that's very exciting. It's challenging. It's frustrating. But I think it's just so cool that we get to live through this time period. 
Yeah. No, it feels like if there's a game clock, if anything, it's just accelerating. <laughs> We're all being forced to play at a faster and a faster tempo, which is, which is you know, maddening. I love, by the way, that's maybe the best analogy I've ever heard of how to think about a concentrated portfolio. It's like your Belichick deciding who joins the team and who doesn't join the team and, you know, appreciating talent broadly, but also having to make really tough decisions about kind of who's ready for prime time and who deserves a place on the roster. So that was amazing. I, I want to ask one more question and then we'll, we'll move on to worm theory, which um, everyone's going to enjoy it. So you guys have a lot of amazing thoughts there. But the last one is I've heard you talk quite a few times around constructing a survivable portfolio. And I think you have some really novel thoughts there. Talk about that because I think one, that's also commentary on concentration and why concentration is important, but it's also, you know, I think speaks to the moment in time we're in and this belief that we're in, you know, early, early innings in an incredibly disruptive innovative period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just goes back to, you know, for us, we can stomach quote risk, we can't stomach business risk. And so we can accept the fact that like real estate, you know, if you want to sell your house in a bad market, you might not get a good quote. But if you own Malibu real estate, you're going to be fine long term, you know, provided the ocean doesn't overtake us all. But I think I think if you own prime real estate, then you can kind of anticipate that yes, you're you're going to get some volatility and sort of just what buyers are willing to offer you for your asset. But if you own a quality, then you'll you'll make it out and you'll you'll do fine over the long term. I think that just again, like everyone's playing different games. There's plenty of very smart people who manage successfully to go in and out of positions. And I think that's great. I think that that, you know, there's a lot of sort of concurrent games happening in a stock market where there's millions of participants. And one of the benefits that we get of being investors in public equities is we get daily liquidity, right? Like if we want to sell our business, we can do it whenever we want. You can't say that for real estate. So I think that there is the price of that or the premium, I think, is accepting that the quote's bouncing around quite a bit. When we think about like constructing a portfolio, it's really it just comes down to customers lined up around the block. And how that really plays out is we may get a bad quote, but if the business is growing, you know, and, and I think like we're just more concerned, maybe we're, we consider ourselves, and I think we really are true value investors, but we're less concerned with maybe sort of like quarterly earnings or sort of backwards looking metrics around earnings per share or PE ratios. We're much more focused on top line growth, gross profit growth, and sort of margin expansion questions. And so when we're looking, you know, sort of like risk reward, our questions are more about well, how big is this market that they're going after? What is what are the consumers saying about this? Um, what are employees saying? How quickly are they growing? We're not actually all that concerned with how much profit can they extract from each transaction. We look at it like well, how can we scale this thing to get a billion customers? Um, not how can we squeeze out an extra 50 bips of profit from each customer. That's one particular framework to invest. And I think for us, we found that over the long term, that can be incredibly rewarding because you get these businesses like Amazon that I think their DNA is about satisfying the customer. It's not necessarily about trying to get the most profit per transaction. You're just trying to get more sellers, more buyers onto the platform, build out the infrastructure of logistics, which, you know, if you were to sort like live through the 
the build out of AWS or the build out of you know Amazon's logistics network, it was like you know the poster child of the you know overpriced just like crazy valuation traded at like 500 times earnings. But you had to look a little bit longer term to really see what they were attempting to do, and. You know, I think that these companies that on the surface look very expensive, and there's there's quite a few that look really expensive, but if you kind of expand your time horizon and you think about sort of like the levers that some of these companies that we're attracted to can pull, the profitability, the P&L really shows up later, you know, more in the out years. And in the out years, they can become enormous, but they first have to build the infrastructure. And so that's kind of what we're primarily concerned with. I have no idea if I answered your question exactly, but I think- uh, No, you did a great job. (laughs) I think just even that insight around not focusing on backwards looking metrics and focusing on forward looking metrics like top line growth, incremental margins and unit economics is really interesting. You know, it reminds me of like one feeling that I constantly have of investors and public markets, maybe misjudging companies just goes back to that example you were saying around the build out of AWS in the early days. You know, it it sounds very similar to me as like, you've literally just dug a hole, planted a tree, and now you're just staring at the soil pissed that the tree's not up and there's not like a hundred leaves that have already sprouted because you can't stomach that it takes time and you have to invest. And I think growing a business is constantly this act of you're deploying an enormous amount of resources today that you think is going to be valuable three, five years from now, but it takes a long time horizon there. And I just think there are many people that misjudge that dynamic and, and yeah, view success as, are you extracting the most value today? As if that's going to be the thing that determines whether the business is bigger five years from now or not, which it isn't. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I think that culturally there's an element of, we've just grown so accustomed to instant gratification. I mean, if you have any question, you just pull out your phone, Google, it. if you need a ride, you just get Uber and it's there on demand. And so I think like culturally our brains are getting rewired to expect things to happen immediately. And that's very harmful when it comes to actually investing. And I read, yeah, and I read something recently. I'm sure I I can't fact check it on the fly, but I read it in, I'll think of the name of the book in a second. But basically the idea was Fidelity did a full, a study of their best performing accounts and like individual accounts. And of course the finding was like, the people who had the absolute best returns were people who completely forgot that they owned the brokerage account and just like bought some stocks and did nothing. And I'm sure maybe the other end of that bell curve is true of like the worst performing accounts. So I think that's fair to mention. But I do think that, yes, like it's like instant gratification. I tell you, you're right. Like we're planting these trees, we're just waiting. But there's so much action bias in our culture of wanting to do, especially when things are going bad, by the way, like in the market's super chaotic. I think there's like this urge to do something when in reality, the best thing to do is is nothing. I mean, you know, don't trade, just go for a walk. And so it's fighting that sort of cultural urge that we've kind of developed over the last 20 years of like, yeah, things, things should happen really quickly, getting really impatient. And finding a way to rewire our brains, at least when we're investing, to kind of think longer term. And that's super challenging. I'm not saying I'm good at that. I just know that that's, that's the aspirational goal of any investor who at least you know considers themselves long term is just fighting that like itch to do something, to check the news, to you know check the quote. I think that that's like increasingly becoming a super important skill set in this in this market. Yeah. Just to sit with something or sit with discomfort and not feel like you need to do something, which is it is really funny cuz you know like as an analogy it's almost like you're in your house and there's a storm that you're in and the storm's really bad. 
we never do anything. We just sit in our house and wait for the storm to pass. You're not like out there trying to do a bunch of things to figure it out and, I don't know, adjust what you're doing. But yes, I guess in in areas where you can take action, it does feel like, oh man, what should I be doing? And I feel that that comes up a lot just in conversations with other investors. feels like anytime you're in a moment of turbulence, there's just a lot of existential soul searching. <laughs> like, what should I do now? What's going on? What's the answer? I don't know. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, like just the 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 idea of just slowing down is has so much value, and it's also not to say that like doing nothing is always the the correct answer. I think it's like a time just to reflect and sort of recheck all your theses and kind of double check your notes because sometimes I think that it's fair to say, well, we've had this experience before with like when we have we call it like sort of reduced visibility, like you know March twenty twenty was a good example of like we just. We had no idea what was going to happen. So we did risk off in that environment. We did sell of our positions because we just, it was like a moment in time where we couldn't, not only could we not see three years ahead of us, we couldn't see, you know, two feet in front of us, you know, a day in front of us. So yes, selectively choosing when to act, it's incredibly challenging, but just learning to, to sort of approach the problem with, hey, maybe an action is not the best outcome here, but at least let's kind of go through it again and check the thesis can we do anything, ask the questions and, and just remain level-headed about it at all the times. So yeah, I mean, and that that's, you know, true when things are going great too, right? Like, you know, there's, there's periods when the market's soaring and I think, you know, probably we're not really involved in crypto, but I, I see this on, you know, crypto just moves very quickly. And is it the right answer to immediately, you know, like risk off and take profits? I don't know. I mean, but I think that if you have a long-term perspective, at least you ask the right questions and that's like the most important thing. Yeah. One way I've always thought about that is, you know, like, what is your default? And it feels like the right default there is to do nothing. And you can ask those questions and talk about it. But I think by having it be a default of inactivity, you kind of force yourself to say, okay, to take an action, then it has to get to a certain level. I have to have comprehended this or made a decision or thought through this enough that I'm willing to basically override that kind of default that says I shouldn't do anything. Okay. I want to talk just for a second quickly about worm theory. And then I want to talk about uh, Tesla as a little bit of a case study of a position you guys have held for a very long time. But with worm theory, you know, it's worm theory. I'm going to try my best to try to describe this. <laughs> you were very grateful to share this wonderful video you guys have internally. That's kind of the theory of eternal life in, in business, basically how businesses you know can thrive and succeed over time. And in it, you talk about worm theory. And obviously one of the North stars, maybe the biggest one is just this idea that everything at the end of the day goes back to customer value proposition and the ability to deliver that. And that one of the visuals you guys talked about there, which I loved, it's just super, super, super simple, but it's, it's wonderful is, you know, if you think about about a customer on one side, you think about a business on the other. It's basically customers are giving dollars to a business and what they're getting in return is an experience or a value proposition. It's basically a promise and, you know, a product or some sort of experience that, that they've had. And, you know, that that's really, if you just focus on customer value proposition, you can do pretty well at determining who's going to win over different time horizons. But you guys also have this notion that, you know, the game of business is one, one transaction at a time. And I thought one of the most interesting parts was that, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, I think it would be great to talk about a little bit more, is that there's really kind of two worlds at all times in investing. There's the stock market, which is very separate and distinct. And then there are businesses. And a lot of people focus and look to the stock market to give them data on a business and whether that business is doing well and whether they should add more or not. But with with the business itself, 
that's where all the truth is. That's where all the data is. So I may have totally butchered that. Anything to add to that pushback on? <laughs> we try to communicate this internally and then also, you know, just sort of like, I've always tried to express this idea that the stock market is kind of where investors go to get liquidity, right? Or buy assets. But the stock market beyond that actually has very little tangible value for investors who are looking for information about businesses. That's happening out in the world. And, and you can get some of it through reading, you know, 10Ks and 10Qs and, you know, reading all the transcripts and getting all the alternative data that exists that, you know, some of these providers want to sell to you. But ultimately, you know, one of the best ways to really understand sort of the industrial dynamics is just to talk to customers and, and to listen to customers and listen to what they're saying. And so I think that's kind of where, like I sort of alluded to before, like we spend a lot of our time just thinking about businesses through the perspective of customers, which is what are they saying? What are they doing? They're exchanging their time, their hard-earned capital for some sort of product or service. And what we're really attracted to, and I think where you know our eyes really turn is like, if there's suddenly something where people are waiting lined up around the block if there's some something you know either literally or philosophically or sort of metaphorically because that is going to be interesting to us like if we not necessarily you know a company that's cutting you know 8000 jobs and is going to um, you know boost their eps next quarter we're looking for a company that is typically led by you know the founders who have a very strong perspective on what the product or service should be. And I think also we're, we're just sort of looking for companies that are willing to experiment and try new things and take bets, right? Take calculated risks to see, you know, we have X amount of cash in the bank and we can, you know, for a relatively small amount of our capital, create a product or service. And if it's successful, we can add capital to it and, ex and grow it and expand it. And that's ultimately, you know, innovation is just like a series of trying new things and failing most of the time. But, you know, occasionally you have a couple of successful ones and then you just keep adding capital to, to the successful ones. So we, we look for companies that I think are willing to try something new as, as cliche or as hackneyed as that sound. If I just think about our, our portfolio, it's like companies that typically recognize hey, there's a better way to do this, right? There's a better value. And that's like really what Clayton Christensen talks about in The Innovator's Dilemma, which is like, you know, you have these incumbents and then suddenly a new technology comes on the scene that offers like a better, cheaper, more efficient way of doing something. And the old companies are typically not able to transition their business models very quickly, but consumers might change their preferences overnight. And that's a lot of like the tension that exists in, in disruption is... You know, there's a reason why Blockbuster couldn't compete with Netflix. There's a reason why, you know, Barnes and Noble couldn't really compete with Amazon. It's just that there's something in these organizations' DNA, the way that it expresses themselves is the incumbents tend to focus on preserving cash flows, playing sort of protect and defend the old guard, whereas the younger upstarts, the innovators, they have to come up with a better value proposition and Oftentimes it's very expensive. These are capitally intensive, you know, sort of uh, endeavors. But if they're successful, they can be totally transformative. And so I think some of our core investment themes are aligned with this of identifying uh, management teams, entrepreneurs, you know, companies that are focused on finding sort of a better value proposition for customers, and that come up with something that is like super comp compelling. And 
we don't care as much like if it's super profitable in the short term. We just want to know that down the road, there's going to be huge amounts of profits. They just need to build, build, build and keep satisfying the customer demand. So I think you see that a lot, like that mentality more probably in venture capital and probably some of the investment communities that, that you spend most of your time in on, on sort of the private and VC side. But I think we ap- apply some of those principles in, in public markets, maybe at a little bit of a later, later stage, um, obviously like a higher market cap, but yeah, we're just like relentlessly focused on, you know, product and customer and everything yeah. else flows from there. Yeah. I love the, you know, what I wrote down as you were talking is founder led opinionated and, you know, experimental in embracing risk. Because I think even just if you look at those, if you, you had a sheet of paper that only had those three checkboxes, you're going to find very few companies that are actually able to check those boxes. And I think the hardest one there that I've seen is, you know, founder led, I don't know, the, it's very specific in terms of moment in time and, and, com- and company opinionated. If you have a great founder, they're going to be incredibly opinionated. Um, but the ability to experiment and embrace experimentation and do it in a risk on way, because you see that overall it has massive upside and you, you know, you focus much less on the downside of this flops or, or this one particular experiment fails, I think is a superpower. And, you know, all, the, all of my favorite companies of it, I think have that or private, I think have that in their DNA. And it's just something I think as a, as a world that we should be celebrating. <laughs> and I'd like to see much more of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think that like, uh, it's very like Steve Jobsian, you know, but just like embracing sort of like, just challenging the status quo. And I just don't think you come up with a product like the iPhone if you just are looking to create the next, you know, brick handheld, you know, uh, cell phone. And also to be clear, like a lot like this, I, you know, there's, there's definitely flops, right? Like there's definitely probably way more. In fact, I'm positive, like way more sort of like product flops across all corporate history. And a lot of even great companies like have put out things that just haven't worked, but that's so important to, be, especially in this environment in which like like I said customer preferences can change really quickly to have like a culture of sort of experimentation and challenging even your core line of business because if you're not going to do it someone else is going to do it and I mean Amazon did that with with AWS it was like you know here's this Amazon's done that so many times <laughs> right they're an online bookseller and suddenly they're you know what they're selling a cloud service you know like it I think in the moment it's it's tough to really sort of go back in time and remember how odd that seemed to so many people, especially investors. And I think that that's kind of what it takes though, is, you know, the, the sort of like gusto and just the, the willpower of certain individuals within organizations to, to kind of push for that. You don't get it from a sort of legacy CEO that's just trying to like, you know, manage their stock options for next quarter. No. Well, cause I think, I mean, to me, I think what the people that embrace experimentation and doing that in a risk on way, what they understand that most people don't understand is, you know, and it goes back to something that you made earlier, you know, a point you made earlier around just the power law where they recognize that if they're smart with the experiments that they're willing to do and the bets that they're willing to make, they know like failure is absolutely guaranteed. But what is inherent that you that it could be emergent from those experiments are brand new business lines that could be massive in scale. You know, you look at something like AWS or with Amazon, the Zooks car service, which is still super nascent, or their retail store strategy or Whole Foods and, you know, what they're doing in grocery. And I think that the insight there is, yes, we're going to fail. So we shouldn't focus on that. We shouldn't be demoralized by that. We should celebrate it. And it makes me think of that Jeff Bezos quote around the Fire Phone or whatever that was, where he was 
was like, if you think this was a failure, we have much bigger failures that are that we're working on now. And I'm like, what a wonderful perspective to take on, you know, experimentation. But anyways, I think that's the insight that I really draw, <laughs> drawn from those. So I want to talk just to just to round this out about Tesla, because you guys have owned Tesla for a very long time. Obviously, I'm sure there are people listening that might be vomiting in their mouth because they think maybe you've just added this position on over the last two years, because I think Tesla is a very polarizing name. You guys have owned this for a very long time. And so I want to talk, I want to kind of start it by going back in time and talk about this initial thesis. And then I want to talk about how you've refresh that conviction over time because you've now held it for many, many, many years and some of the research you're, you're doing today. So can you just kind of take us back in time, talk about when you were doing the initial research on Tesla and what got you excited? What, what made you be willing to add that to the portfolio? Yeah. So really this was like late 2015, early 2016. Tesla, you know, I think it's fair to say they were basically incinerating cash. I mean, it was a not, it was not a cash generating business. They were losing a lot of money. And that was the the sort of, you know, critique that the doc on them was like, they're, they're never going to make money. I think that what initially got, frankly, Arnie excited about it was the experience of driving in one. Um, it was like for him, it was like just a light bulb of, he used to, he doesn't play golf anymore, but back in the, you know, the nineties, he'd play golf. And it was like, he relays this anecdote of like when they introduced uh, electric golf carts, he just saw like everyone wanted the electric golf carts. No one wanted the gas golf carts. And so I think it, for him, it was just this, you know, sort of like consumer preference realization that a, this is just a better product, much like the iPhone was a better product than, you know, the Nokia or the flip phone or razor, whatever we had back then. And that the potential for multiple lines of business beyond just the the consumer car were going to become apparent over time. So Tesla's mission, you know, I think has arguably evolved, but really it's to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energies. I think increasingly it's becoming clear to me and, and other participants in the market that Tesla is one of the core innovators around artificial intelligence, neural nets, um, and that their approach to you know full self-driving and, and autonomous vehicles, while it's certainly we're not there yet, the work that they're doing could enable sort of the next shift in the in the company's life cycle. We're not there yet. I think right now one of the the thing that just gets me sort of really excited about just thinking about sort of the evolution of the company over the last few years is the the manufacturing prowess that they've built up. I mean, I've visited the the you know the factory in Reno, Nevada. It's like an engineering nightmare to build electric vehicles at scale for a profit. Like it is so immensely challenging to do this. And it took them so many years to really figure out the production ramp. And so I always have to laugh a little bit like when I see some of these, you know, new electric car companies coming to market. It's like, good luck, guys. Like, you know, I lived through that, you know, the, the production ramp in 2017, 2018. It's really challenging. So just going back to kind of like the what we were excited about, I mean, they're going after two initially two huge, you know, industrial sectors, which is just transportation and, and energy. And if you believe that the 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 future is likely going to be led by electric cars and you believe that the future is likely going to believe that we're replacing our sort of incumbent system of fossil fuels with renewables, you have to pay attention to, to what Tesla is doing. The market perception has and likely always will be uh, just somewhat totally divided. I mean, we suffered through, uh, you know, 40, 50% drawdown on the stock in 2019. 
and it's only recently, really in the last couple of years, that I think sentiment is starting to at least recognize the the potential for this to be a truly dominant company over the next several years, potentially the next decade, next couple of decades, I think. But I think it was just sort of penciling out the math. I mean, something I alluded to earlier in the conversation is if you just went out a few extra years, you know, starting in 2017, 2018, you could start to see how the infrastructure that they were building that was costing them quite a bit of money could result in a pretty incredible return on invested capital. And I think that's still not totally well understood or at least well appreciated, which is, you know, their ability to generate really impressive gross margins on each vehicle produced at scale and sort of the similarities that you start seeing in other sort of consumer technology sectors. Uh, Tesla always will receive the comparison while it's you know valued at X versus other car companies, which are valued at Y. And I think that these sort of analogies, to me, it indicates it's good. I mean, we're still early. I think that just like people would say, you know, well, how could Amazon possibly be worth how could it be worth this much versus brick and mortar stores are worth this? It's just a different, you know, it's a different business completely. I think that we would consider Tesla a highly vertically integrated software and technology hardware manufacturer. So I think part of like what is so interesting about Tesla is like the business itself has actually grown fairly linearly over the last several years, um, starting, you know, around 2015, 2016, like just in terms of the production of vehicles and the sort of like incremental growth and the return on invested capital. Um, And yet the stock price has gone crazy. It's gone up, it's gone down. But just simply staying focused on a lot of our core principles, which is consumers love this product. It has one of the highest like NPS scores ever. There's a bit of consumer obsession with it. And the possibility for continued growth, and in our opinion, at least, is, you know, we think this is a business that's going to grow 50% a year, at least, for the next decade. And so there are very rarely, at least, you know, from my perspective, companies at this level of scale that can grow at that sort of compounded growth rate over the next, you know, 10 years or so. And so, you know, it's pretty mind-blowing when you kind of pencil out what the numbers could be. And I'm purely talking about, like, vehicle production growth, trucking it gets really nutty when you start thinking about potentially for on the neural nets and um, the opportunity for autonomous driving, um, which is just, you know, basically software business at a crazy level of scale. And so, yeah, that's, you know, it, it kind of hits on a lot of the core themes of companies that we're attracted to. It's one of those positions that has been so deeply unpopular, so deeply hated, I'd say, by certain pockets of the community. And also um, very profitable. <laughs> because... well, well, yeah, I mean, it's done well. I mean, but every day it's just like, we just start with from scratch. And I think that like, it just goes back to like, we are attracted to some complexity. We're, we're attracted to some chaos because ultimately that's when the biggest, you know, divergence of opinions can happen. That's, I think, the that's just an indicator of potential for both good and bad. I mean, not every, you know, company that's that's labels themselves an innovator or a disruptor will prove to be so. So I hope that it, you know, I could talk for No, I think that was fantastic, but the one thing I do just cuz we talked about this uh before we recorded and I feel like we have to explore it just and we can close out the episode after this is so you guys are constantly doing 
deep technical research and, and just deep research, including on positions that you're holding. And, and I kind of want to fold these two things together. But, you know, what you guys are, um, it sounds like you just brought on an analyst. And one of the things that they're working on now is really diving into the neural net technology behind this full self-driving um, that, tex- that Tesla's working on. And I, I want to talk about that kind of from two angles. One, why do deep technical research? Because I think that that's worth talking about that because you guys do it and a lot of other people don't. But the second is around, I'm guessing part of doing this is maintaining conviction and belief on where Tesla's going. So just talk about that research and talk about how that kind of, I don't know, it flows in in a bigger way into managing the portfolio and, and you know, holding positions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, part of our aspirational goal is to be just sort of the number one researchers on the areas that we cover. And I think that historically, that's just inevitably during periods of, you know, both good and bad, focusing on the actual company itself. And from an engineering perspective, how it all works is like incredibly helpful um, in terms of building conviction. I'd also say a couple of other things, which is like you pick up stuff along the way that you never really thought might be helpful, but then it introduces you to new companies doing other interesting things. So yeah, our, our, our research analyst is, you know, his project right now, he's doing a lot of things, uh, but his real main focus is neural net architectures and really sort of like all the autonomous types of modalities from, you know, LiDAR-based, vision-based, um, everything that Tesla is doing. And yeah, so why develop that deep technical research? One, because I think it will likely yield other opportunities down the road that may be early. This may be a winner-take-all type of dynamic. It may not be. There may be multiple winning companies. And so we want to be kind of in on the ground where these sort of, you know, disruptors are living, where they're, even if they're not public yet. And then I think you really, number two, it just comes down to, to, to that conviction of just understanding, you know, when the market reacts to something, is it reasonable? Is it right? Right? Because, I'm sure everyone who's listening has experienced if they if they're actively you know investing, whether it's on a private side or public side, you read a headline about a portfolio company and it's like maybe it's super negative and the stock price if it's if it's public it you know it crashes you know ten percent or fifteen percent and you need to know pretty instantly is this legitimate you know is this a legitimate concern and I don't think that you have that ability to sort of sift through the noise and the signal unless you've done the work, unless you've really dug into the thing and you really know the company and you know what they're, and if it's material or not, because sometimes it is material, but sometimes it's not. And so I think doing the deep technical work just allows us to very quickly interpret information that comes across our screens and say, okay, this is not material and we're not concerned about it. And that's really for the benefit of of our partners. I mean, all resources in our business are geared towards our the preservation of our partners' capital and and the ability to generate, you know, positive go forward returns. And so it's like, yeah, there's part of our, you know, strategy is to be, you know, offensive, um, to to go out and seek out new companies and invest in them, allocate capital. And then a lot of it is defensive. And I think a lot of like that technical work is very defensive in nature. It's just sort of like, it's checking the perimeter. It's making sure everything's working. And if it's not working right, then okay, we know what we need to do to fix it. And maybe we'll spot some new opportunities along the way. But but certainly it's like, uh, it's just around like knowing it better so that we can make good decisions on a go forward basis. I, I, th- I think that sort of explains it. But um, 
I don't know, it might've been a little bit confusing. No, that was really well said. You have so many great kind of metaphors and analogies. <laughs> Talk about your work. I'm going to beg, borrow, and steal a lot of these. <laughs> I think I stole one of them. I, I can't remember. I was talking to my friend, John Huber, and if he's listening, I may have taken the Bill Belichick. I think I kind of extrapolated on his idea, but... It's, you're standing on the shoulder of giants. It's good to go. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. This has been, you know, a longer conversation than we typically had, but this has been amazing. And I could keep talking for another couple of hours. So thank you so much for the time, Eric. Um, I just really quickly before we wrap, if anyone listening wants to learn more about Worm, you should absolutely go to wormcapital.com. There's tons of fantastic stuff on the site, including a, is it a guide for new investors, a memo for new investors? I think we call it a memo, but I don't, it's a bad name. It's We have like a an overall investment framework for, for what we do. And yeah, I mean, you know, we, we're, I think we also, um, we pride ourselves on being more transparent. And so I do my, uh, my weekly newsletter, which is just sort of ramblings of the stuff that I'm thinking about and it's great. interesting articles and, um, and so people can sign up for for the Nightcrawler on our website, and uh, you know we have our director of investor relations. His email is on our website, um, and we've got you know articles going back you know five, six, seven years. So plenty of stuff on there in the wormhole. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the quarterly letters, which I love, which I highly encourage everyone to look at. And uh, just the last thing, if anyone wants to follow Eric, you can find Eric on Twitter at Eric Markowitz, and you share a lot of great stuff. So thank you so much for the time, Eric. It's been amazing to have you on. I really appreciate. Yeah, thank it. you, Dean. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the notes and transcript for this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 96. That's 96. At outlieracademy.com, you can find more incredible interviews with investors like Robert Cantwell of Compound Kings and Dan Roller of Moran Capital Management, as well as the founders of Superhuman Levels Rally and many interviews with some of the world's best-selling authors. You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.